Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to two places today, Hebrews chapter 9 and Exodus chapter 25. We're in that second part of our series of Jesus and the Tabernacle because we're in this study in the book of Hebrews that it was written to a group of Jewish Christians that are not satisfied with their faith in Jesus Christ. They're not satisfied in the new covenant, but rather they're being tempted to go backwards to the old covenant. Now in our previous studies, and I was looking, this is our 39th study in the book of Hebrews, so in our previous studies, we've looked at the covenants and we've seen, the, and seen and identified the old covenant that's being referred to in Hebrews is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that came through Moses from Mount Sinai, the law. And so pick up with me in verse 1 of chapter 9 of Hebrews as we come to the introduction of the sanctuary or the tabernacle. So it says, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And so we're spending time looking at the tabernacle. If you'd like to write in your Bibles, you can circle the word tabernacle and write next to it tent. Because the tabernacle was the temporary place of worship that God instructed the children of Israel to build just after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And it was given, they were given very precise, specific instructions on how to build it. And so before we even get into Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to want to understand the tabernacle. We're going to look at it piece by piece and see how the pieces of the tabernacle point toward Jesus Christ. That in the building of the tabernacle, even the tabernacle was speaking of the coming Messiah, which the significance is this. You've got a group of people that have faith in Jesus Christ, but they want to go backwards to the old covenant, which if they did go backwards to the old covenant, they would only be pointed toward Jesus Christ. And he's trying to point out to them as he's walking through the importance of clinging to Jesus, how important it is not to go backwards. Now, of course, at the time that Hebrews was written in the first century, it, the temple was still in existence. It wasn't the tabernacle anymore. It was the temple. And the temple worship was everything in the tabernacle and more and grander. And they, they are wanting to go backwards because of the pressures and the temptations and all that's going on in their life. And we've been studying through, encouraged ourselves not to go backwards, encouraged ourselves to look. So the next few weeks are going to be really cool Bible studies as we tie together. Not only will we learn about the tabernacle and the furniture and how it points to Jesus Christ. But one other thing I want you to get out of this series is how the Bible is one unit, how it's all tied together. Like for example, the grace of God. The grace of God is not just a new covenant concept. God is a God of grace and it's all over the Bible. The idea of his unmerited, unearned favor. It's right, it begins right in the book of Genesis chapter one with creation. God is a God of grace. It's not just a new covenant concept. 
but rather it is an attribute of God himself. So come back to Exodus 25, and let's begin to see the first three pieces that are being built within the tabernacle. Pick up with me in verse 8 of Exodus 25. Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Let's pause there for a moment and remember that they were to build the tabernacle exactly as God gave to them. What God said, they were to follow exactly. Now, whether you are or not, we know something about God that as he reveals himself. God is into details. It's very important that you recognize that God is into details, and when he reveals details or gives you detailed instruction, your response in mind is to respond to the details. And what that means is you don't have permission, I don't have permission to deviate from God's direction. If he says something, we're to follow it exactly. Now, I'm not saying that something that a pastor told you or a priest told you or someone, you, we are to follow God's instructions specifically and to understand that when he says something, he means it. So that when he tells them, as we see in a moment, in verse 10, you shall make an ark of acacia wood. Now, do you guys hear that they're flying over from Buckley? So it just reminds me we should pray for them. So let's pray. Father, <clears throat> we want to thank you for the men and women that serve in the military. Uh, even as you have them flying over us right now, often taken for granted of what they stand in the gap on our behalf and they, they, they are committed to standing for our freedom. So we pray that you keep them safe, both those that are flying over us, those that are deployed, those that are, are back uh, here waiting. Uh, keep them safe and bring the men and women home safely. And we're thankful that we have so many right here in our backyard with Buckley uh, that you would uh, have your hand upon them and all the things that are going on in their lives, that even the difficulties they're facing would draw them to a place of looking for hope and keep them safe, Lord. And thank you for having them right here in our own city. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about the, yeah, we praise God. We're so grateful. And uh, we forgot to thank God. Thanks for scheduling to fly over right during service. That's how it was first service too. But we're very grateful. We, we forget sometimes of all those serving behind the scenes. And so we're grateful for them. So notice verse 10. In verse 10 it says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. They weren't to choose any other kind of wood. It's not something you just like, well, you know, we can get a deal on six things of, you know, six sheets of plywood, so we don't need the acacia wood. No, God was very specific that they were to use acacia wood, as we'll see in a moment. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we're to be men and women of the details, the details of God's word, and to follow them in the details that God gave them. We're not to deviate. We're not to make it up as we go. So here's the first piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. Make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall overlay it, shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. 
You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, and the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony. You can circle that word testimony, and right next to it, law. You're supposed to put the law in the ark, of which I will give you. So the first piece of furniture is a box. And in this box, they were to put in a copy of the law. It was to be made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold and have a molding around it with some hooks there so that they can make this, have the sticks. They would put through the rings and they could carry it around without touching it. And inside, eventually there'd be three items, but it starts with the law. But remember, you Bible students know later on, they put in the Ark of the Covenant a jar of manna and Aaron's rod. But for now, it's just the law. And the law would be in the box or in the Ark. Now, wood in the Bible is often a type of humanity. And I find that interesting. Wood is a type of humanity. Sometimes it's a, a type of bad humanity, but in general, it just speaks of man. And our God, Jesus Christ, was 100% man. And this acacia wood represents his manhood, his humanity. But notice it was overlaid with gold. Gold is often a picture and a type in the Bible of deity and royalty. And so you see the two coming together right here in the tabernacle. You have humanity overlaid with deity, which you Bible students know in Philippians, we find that God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, he would come down and take the form of a human, the place of a servant. And far back before Messiah ever comes, thousands of years before he comes, already God is giving a picture and a type. Now we're going to use the word typology a few times in our Bible study days, so let me define it for you. When you hear the word typology, it speaks of a picture of spiritual reality. So when you hear a type, it's a picture of spiritual reality, something that's pointing to something else in its reality. So the acacia wood overlaid in gold is our first picture. Now acacia wood was a harder, darker wood that would last a long time and was able to take a beating, was able to be beat up. Now, in a very real way, Jesus Christ took the beating for you and for me. We called that the scourging, as he was beaten before he was placed on a wooden cross. Acacia wood grew in dry, arid climates. The Bible describes Messiah this way in Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. Not only that, acacia wood was more of a bush. And on the, in the bush, on the acacia limbs were thorns. And that makes a lot of sense as we know that Jesus Christ had a crown of thorns placed around his head. Now, Understand that the children of Israel don't understand all of this typology at the beginning. Just like you as a new believer, you don't understand everything at the beginning. Things are unfolded and you learn over time. Don't be so discouraged that when you sit through a Bible study, maybe this is your first time in this church and we're going through a verse-by-verse -verse Bible study and you're just kind of reading it and you're like, I don't know and I don't understand, I've never heard that before. Don't be discouraged by that. 
Because as you sit under regular Bible teaching, one of the things that will happen is you will learn. You will learn what God has to say in his word. You will understand what the Bible says. Not only will you understand what it says, but the Holy Spirit will reveal to you what it means, and not only what it means, but what it means for you. That's called application. See, the book is not just for, like, to be a student and get a bunch of head knowledge. God gave us the Bible so so that we could live according to his desires. God gave us the Bible, first of all, so we could get to know him, And the more that we get to know him, we begin to live according to his precepts. So the Bible is a very powerful book. And so don't be discouraged. They don't know all the pictures of this, but it's all being planted into their minds because by the time we get to Hebrews, they get it. This stuff would make sense to them. They have embraced Messiah. By the time we get a few thousand years later, as he's writing to Jewish believers who have embraced their Messiah, they would know they would understand. Acacia wood also has a very unique property that even the Bedouins today, the ones that are wanderers out in the the desert, in the Sinai desert there, the Bedouins would pierce the bush and out of the wood would come a gum resin. And they would take that gum resin and they used it as a healing balm on cuts and bruises and pain. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says in Isaiah 53, 5, that he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. You see, already in the very first piece of furniture, we have glimpses and types of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. It gets better. Notice in verse 17, They need to make a lid for the box. And it says in verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it with one piece with the mercy seat. By the way, a cherub is a angel. And when you have a plural in the Hebrew, and they've carried it over into the English, when you have a plural, you would add the letters I-M, and that's why it says cherubim. So whenever you see that in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, it's referring to a plural. And so we understand that there's actually two cherubs, one on either side, the cherubim. It says in verse 20 that they shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. And the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony of which I will give you. And there I'll meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony. Of all things which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So you have the box. And the lid of the box is called the mercy seat. Notice it is to have two angels looking at each other. You can see the picture of what it may have looked like. One on each end, their wing, ing, their, they face each other and their wings are outstretched, covering the mercy seat, covering the ark. And they were to put this on top of the Ten Commandments, on top of the testimony. That's very important. The mercy seat was above the law. I want you to notice this, because long before the new covenant came, the mercy seat 
was always above the law. Now, some people like to make the law above mercy, but mercy always triumphs over the law. And in the very beginning of the worship extension, as God was giving instruction to worship, he said, put the law in the box, but make sure the mercy seat is on top. Now, this was the first piece of furniture that they were instructed to be built. And it was on the mercy seat that God says, I'll meet you there and I'll speak to you. It was on the mercy seat that the priest once a year would bring the blood of the offering. There were three offerings. One for, one, the priest would offer one for himself, one for the people, and then there was the scapegoat. The one that was offered for the nation, for the people, he would take that blood and go into the Holy of Holies and he would spread it on the mercy seat. This is what's being referred to. The box with the law, the angels on top, and it was at the mercy seat that God said, I will meet you there and I will speak to you there. Now, you know, in the Bible, the only time we read of God meeting at a specific location was at this particular box on a regular basis for worship. It was this box. It was the mercy seat that was God's solution to the gulf between man and himself. It was the place where their failures were covered for one more year. As you read through Leviticus chapter 16, you'll have more details of this Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. But the blood basically was sprinkled on the mercy seat so that the law inside that once condemned was covered by blood. Condemnation was covered by blood. Now don't miss this because God is saying, I will meet with you, I will speak with you, and I will give you, he's the initiator. God has always been the initiator. His relationship to you and to me is not based on our performance, on our good deeds, on how good of a believer we might be, how much we've read the Bible, how long we've gone to church, whether we were raised a Christian. That's not, our relationship is not based on our performance, to which you should say, amen, because your performance isn't always all that good. Because really, what can we do but fail? Not only can we fail, that's what we do. We fail. We could even say it this way. We have all failed. There isn't one among us that hasn't failed God in some way, on some day. It could have been on your way to church today. Somebody cut you off and you, I don't know what you did, but I don't even want to talk about it. We're at church right now. <laughs> but we've all failed. I don't know that we would disagree with that. Now what you call failure, the Bible calls sin. So that we can read in the scriptures and agree with God when he says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is exempt from that. We are unable to relate to God in our own energy, our own efforts, our own good deeds. We have failed him. And so you, you know, in the old covenant, they were to meet God at the mercy seat. That's where he dealt with sin. It was the sacrifice of the blood that was spread. Every year it was, it was put out on the mercy seat. That's where God was. But fast forward today. Christianity is not based on what man can do. Because all we can do is stumble around in the darkness. Christianity is not a religion. And it's unfortunate that somewhere along in history, someone codified and made Christianity a religion. 
And when I use that word, what I mean by that is that Christianity has become a list of things to do. And if you do them, then somehow God will honor all that you've done. But you realize by now that that's the exact opposite of what God's taught. God will not honor what you've done. God will honor what his son Jesus Christ has done. And that the best place for you and me is to be found hidden in Christ. That's the safest place on the planet Earth. You know, religion has wrecked people. Do you know, people can be very religious and not know God personally. People can be very active spiritually, what they define as spiritually, and not know God. See, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a person. We've got to go all the way back to Jesus Christ when he said, follow me. That's what he said. He said that to you and to me. Follow me. Follow me. I believe an example of religion blinding people can be found in the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, the extension of worship is given to the people religiously. And the reason why I choose Roman Catholicism is because it's close to, it's close to what the Bible teaches, but not quite. I have many, many friends and family that are a part of Roman Catholicism even right now. Some of you listening in, you might be there and your ears are perking up. It's important to understand that that is a system of belief. It's a religion. It's an empty religion that's close but not quite. And you don't want to, when it comes to your soul, you don't want to be close and not quite. You want to be right. And Jesus made it very simple. Come unto him, all you weary and heavy laden, and he'll give you rest. That he is the only life the only truth and the only way. But, but here's what I mean in a very simplistic way. Within Roman Catholicism, they say this. This is how you get there. You go through the sacraments, and you need to follow the sacraments, and if you follow the sacraments, then just maybe you'll make it. That's a summary. And the sacraments start even before you even know what you're doing by being baptized as a baby, and then all the way to the end, you kind of go through all the various sacraments, and then people are very concerned that before they have their last breath, that they have last rites. Now, why is that such a significant thing, last rites? Why do you need a man to come in and give you last rites? Why is that so important? Because it's part of the system. If you don't follow the system, then you don't get in. And I believe today, God would have me declare to you, everyone listening in on the radio all around the country, God would want you to know, if you weren't baptized as a baby and you, didn't, you don't receive last rites, you can be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. That you can come to him directly. That you do not need to go through a man. And you say, Ed, Ed, I mean, there's a lot of different systems out there, a lot of different religions. Why did you pick Roman Catholicism? Well, because a lot of people are still stuck in that, thinking that they're close to Jesus. And they have great sincerity. And sincerity is not what is going to get you into heaven. Only repentance of your sin and surrender to Jesus Christ will get you there. And it's unfortunate that Christianity, you see, you could be a very, it, it works here too. Like you can be in this room and still be very far from God. You, you can read your Bible all day long. You can take one of the Bibles that we give you, but that doesn't mean you're saved. You can endure a 40-minute Bible study. That doesn't make you saved. You could sing the songs and learn them. It's only by turning your life to Jesus Christ and following him you don't want to fall short of any religious system that gets in the way of you personally following Jesus Christ. 
You don't want to be a part of a religious system that's very close, but not quite. Or even so, there are some things that are taught that are absolutely not in the Bible. Or there are some things that are taught that the Bible says not to do. And so you want to know the Bible. You don't want to be involved in things because someone told you to do it. You want to be involved in things because Jesus is leading you. And you are in him, like the Bible says, and he is in you. And he illuminates the Bible for you. You don't need me. I'm not the answer to your life's problems and the issue of your sin. Just a tool to point you to Jesus Christ. You can't lean on me because I can't help you like God can help you. (laughs) I don't want you to stop short and be, okay, well, we were almost there and we stopped at pastor. No, don't stop at pastor. Go all the way to the chief shepherd who gave his life for you. And he's our pastor. He's all of our pastor, and we follow him. Christianity is not a religion. It's a person. And how can you come to know God? When you come back to the tabernacle, God is giving us instruction. You don't come to God in the ark through the law. That's not how you get there. You know how every time you see the law, what does it tell you? You failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. Thou shalt not, and you're like, that's all I shall do. You know, that's my life. <laughs> and, and, and so you don't meet with God. God said, I'm not gonna meet you in the ark. I'm gonna meet you on the mercy seat. Very significant. That's where I'm gonna speak to you. I'm gonna speak to you on the mercy seat. Don't climb into the ark. Don't climb into that little box and, and wallow in your failure with the law. No, no, the law is a revealer that we need him at the mercy seat. And so you say, Ed, well, how does that point to Jesus Christ? <laughs> Turn over to 1 John chapter 2. This is so cool. This is why I love how the Bible is all tied together. One message, God's love for us. His redemptive love for us. How he sent Jesus to us so that we might have faith in him. Notice in 1 John chapter 2, In verse 2, you've got to mark this and cross-reference it with the mercy seat. Because there's a word here that we don't use very often, but I'm going to help define it for you. Pick up in verse 1, 1 John chapter 2. We're now thousands of years later. We are, John is a follower and a worshiper of Jesus Christ. And notice what he says. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father... Jesus Christ the righteous. That's a declaration today that anybody can come to the Father through Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through a man. You don't have to go through a system. You don't have to go through a church. Everyone has equal access to the Father through Jesus Christ. There's only one advocate. There's only one mediator between God and man. He himself, notice verse two, is the propitiation. Use that word at work lately, propitiation. Well, here's what it means. Circle it right next to it. Mercy seat. It literally means atoning sacrifice, that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore because Jesus himself is our mercy seat. He is our propitiation for the sins, but not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. God has made salvation available to whosoever will let him come. Whosoever Not just a little select group, not just a group that, hey, one group gets already picked to go to heaven and everyone else is going to hell. The Bible's call through Jesus Christ is that anyone can be saved if they come to him today. 
anyone. It's for the whole world. Everyone. From the very beginning, that was the heart of God. So Jesus is our pope. He's the mercy seat. So in the building of the ark, where is God going to meet them in the tabernacle? On the mercy seat. On the lid, the mercy seat. Where is he going to speak to them? On the lid, which is called the mercy seat. Now check this out. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. It gets even better. If the only place, if the only place in the tabernacle, the only place on the whole planet that God is going to meet, deal with sin, and speak is on the mercy seat, well, check out Hebrews chapter 1. It's been a long time since we've been here, but notice in verse 1 what it says here. God, who in various times and in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, who happens to be the mercy seat that the mercy seat in the tabernacle was pointing to all along. How is he speaking to us today? By his son. Where do you meet God today? His son. Where do you hear from God today? His son. Just like it was in the old covenant just like it was in the tabernacle. It was all pointing to the coming of Messiah. A lot of believers have it backwards today, and I hope you don't. But a lot of believers have it backward. They kind of live their lives like, you know, I'll meet God in the ark. I'll keep the commandments. I'll keep the rules. I'll follow the regulations. Bypassing the mercy seat altogether. But while they're trying to keep the law and keep the commandments, they're frustrated. They're upset. They're self-condemning because they bypassed the mercy seat. A lot of times when you're trying to keep the law and you're so frustrated, you'll hear something like, well, I, I don't hear the voice of God. I don't hear from God anymore. I didn't get much out of that Bible study. I didn't really like worship. Why? Because you bypassed the mercy seat. God said that he will speak to you on the mercy seat. He said he'll speak to you through his son. Not going back to the law and say, okay, church, give me 10 things I'm supposed to do, and I'll do those 10 things. No, you won't. You probably won't even do five of them. Maybe two, very good, maybe. Because Jesus penned it much deeper, huh? He said it wasn't just our outward actions. It's our heart. And I mean, like today you go, well, Ed, you don't know how bad I was. I used to cuss all the time. I don't cuss anymore, except in my head. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for not sharing it with us but you're still cussing. You're still using the Lord's name in vain. Yeah, but you don't hear it, but you know it. Why? Because you can't keep an external law. Remember the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ, and the way that you enjoy the presence of Jesus Christ is by surrender, where you just say, that's it. I acknowledge that I am unable to please God in my own energy, my own efforts. I, I, even if today you go, well, I read the Bible more last week than, than I did the week before. Praise God, but you're not any closer to God. You're just enjoying him more. <laughs> it's just a good thing. I know I woke up this morning, I did some devos, but then the Lord was speaking to me, just get into the word. So I was reading a devo book and then he said, just get into the word. And as I began to get into the word, just reading through Isaiah, and then I went over to the Proverbs, I'm like, man, this is just so pure. It was just so pure. I, re I read the words of a man in a devotional and that was good. You know, it started with a scripture and then that was really good. But then when I turned to the scriptures, that's just pure good, man. <laughs> that's just like, that's just pure good of God speaking to my heart. We've got to meet him on the mercy seat. And today, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, not any religion, any system.
It's powerful. Let's look at the next piece of furniture, the table of showbread. This one's a little easier to see in how it points to Jesus Christ. Some of you already know how it's going to point to him, but let's read in verse 23. You shall also make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a hand breadth all around. You shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. You shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings in the four corners that are at the four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as the holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and the bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. Again, we have greater insight on how to use this piece of furniture in Leviticus chapter 24. But basically, we learn that on the table were to be 12 loaves of bread, representing one each for the 12 tribes of Israel. And that it was to be changed out every Sabbath, and the bread that was taken off the table, the priests would then be able to eat for themselves. The bread was for them. And now this is a very easy picture because Jesus would later on say it very directly, didn't he? He said, I am the bread of life. And so the bread on the tables reminded them of the table, by the way, that was made of acacia wood, speaking of humanity, overlaid in gold, speaking of deity and royalty. And now on top of that is the bread, as Jesus declares in John chapter 6, that he is the bread of life. The only place for spiritual nourishment is found in a relationship with him. He says, I'm the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger and shall never thirst. And the bread, we learn, had to be made a certain way. One of the ways that's most interesting is that, first of all, was to be made with the best flour, fine flour. But also the fine flour then had to be ground and had to be pressed. In John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus gave us this teaching. He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You see, Jesus went before us as this flower points to his absolute surrender to the Father's will, being ground, if you will, to the point of death as a seed put into the ground. And without the death of Jesus Christ, there would be no fruit in the world today. Which leads me to something I know that is troubling for many today. It's very hard for many within the body of Christ, and that is, There are many listening to me right now that have a hard time with denying themselves. An unwillingness to deny yourself. The greatest problem in our lives that leads to the most sin is our self-centeredness and our unwillingness to deny ourselves. Did you know that denying yourself is so important that Jesus, when he calls us to follow him, I mean, if he was here today to say, who wants to follow him? I know. If I did a simple survey here and I said, hey, let's do a hand clap or a yell. Who wants to follow Jesus? The room, the roof will go. It'll just say, hey, yeah, of course, yes, yes, yes. Everybody wants to follow. Nobody wants to deny. But do you know the condition of following Jesus is number one, deny yourself. So you could say that if 
if and when you're not denying yourself, you're not following Jesus. Oh, I don't mean a salvation statement. I mean a discipleship statement. When you and I assert ourselves, which we do far too often, we have stunted our spiritual growth, denying ourselves. And unless we misunderstand him, Jesus gives the second step, doesn't he? He says, if you want to follow me, number one, deny yourself, and then secondly, take up your cross. Talk about a misused verse in the Bible. This has got to be one of them. And if I hear another guy come to me and say, well, Pastor Ed, I'm just carrying my cross. You know, I married her. <laughs> no, man, she is not your cross. And all the ladies are happy. Ladies, you know what I mean, too. He is not your cross to bear. No, we have minimized the statement of Jesus. In the audience of the time of Jesus, when he stated this, he only stated the first part in a much deeper way because the cross meant one thing and one thing only. Utter death. It's not just the denial of ourselves, but it's our dying to self. And that's a great barrier to spiritual growth today. We just are so caught up in pleasing ourselves. Instant gratification. Give me what I want. I'll be happy if life goes the way I want it to go. And just this unwilling. I wonder how many marriages today would benefit from one or both of you denying yourself before each other. Just benefit. It may not solve all your problems, but it's going to put you on the way. We give sometimes in really difficult uh, marriages, sometimes we give this handout, we gave it out at the marriage retreat last year, of an article that I picked up, or really a, a commentary by Pastor John Corson, where he shared that in marriage, he says, somebody's got to die. And to some of you, like, I've been saying that for a long, don't even think that way, because he means it spiritually. In order for your marriage to make progress, somebody's got to die to themselves. And he goes on to explain it. If you want a copy of it, email me. I'll find it and email it to you. And uh, just remind me of it. Uh, if you're on the radio right now, you could email me at Pastor Ed, uh, Pastor Ed at CalvaryAurora.org, and uh, I'll respond to that with a copy of the PDF. And I wonder how many marriages, I wonder how many single people could just be stronger in their contentment if you learn to deny yourself and take up the cross. You know, in our day and age, in our Western culture of Christianity, there aren't a lot of people dying literally for the gospel. It is happening around the world, even as I speak. It's happening so much, and so much news comes to us that we don't even feel it anymore. But literally, dozens upon dozens of men and women are dying because of their faith in Jesus Christ all around the world. Even as we just recently seen the churches being blown up why? Because they're Christians. And so because we're not facing that kind of persecution, God has called us to a different challenge. And I think that if we ask, how many of you would be willing to die for Christ? Yes, I'd be willing to die. But that's not really anything you're facing. So it's easy to say yes to that. Because it probably won't happen. It probably won't happen for most of us. Maybe some of us, but not most of us. So what is God calling us in such a rich, generous culture that we're in? He's calling us to the life of denial of self so that we can live for Christ. 
I think we'd get the same response. I'm willing to live for Christ, but that is played out day by day, isn't it? And it's a ironic, God is often, he uses irony, so it's such a paradox. But see, if you want to live for Christ, you've got to die to yourself. That's the only way. And here's the bread of life, ground flour, Jesus going all the way to the cross. We got to come to that place like Paul did when he said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And there's the table, 12 loaves of bread, reminding the priests of their service and commitment to the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel, pointing them and us to Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the life that's lived after first dying to ourselves. Let's get to the final piece of furniture today in verse 31. This is the golden lampstand, often referred to as the menorah, or the candelabra we might refer to it as. You shall now also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. Six branches shall come out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like all almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand, verse 34. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs, their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be of hammered piece of pure gold, shall make seven lamps for it, arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. Its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold and with all these utensils and to see it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Be precise and detailed. We don't know how big this, uh, this lampstand was, but considering that it was made out of 75 pounds of pure gold, it was probably pretty big, 75 pounds, which reminded me, where did they get all this gold? The people gave the gold. Where did the people get it from? They got it from Egypt. We spent the whole time last week, remember we, our last study, learning how God uses us as a conduit, that nothing that, that nothing that we have belongs to us, it all belongs to God. And here they are, 75 pounds of pure gold. Remember they brought so much stuff, Moses said, don't bring any more. Now one of you wise guys last week put into the offering box a non-gold earring. We know because we melted it down. We thought, no, no. One of you wise guys put an earring in there because it said earrings. And thank you for not putting your nose ring in there. But somebody felt like, they, man, this, if that's what they want, that's what God wants, that's what I give. But can you imagine what it was like for them? All the things that they valued, all the things that they, were, they thought they were going to keep. Actually, God gave it to them for a greater purpose. And I think that's so encouraging to be a part of a greater purpose. 75 pounds of gold is being used here to make this candelabra, this menorah, 
the only source of light in the tabernacle. This one too is easy to see how, Jesus, how it points to Jesus because Jesus said that he is the light of the world. He said that very specifically. And as he shares that he is, like the, like the menorah in the tabernacle as being the only source of light, Jesus too is the only source of light in this world today. No religion, no guru, no teacher, no philosophy, nothing gives light to this world but Jesus Christ. Everything else is darkness, as good as it may sound. You know, some of the theories today undermine the very root of the gospel. Do you know the grace of God shows up very early in the Bible? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. As the Bible declares that God, in the beginning, God. That's a gracious revelation of himself too, to, to reveal himself to the world. Even as he has his creative purposes in mind, in the beginning, God. And you know, the, the false humanistic theory of evolution today goes right after the gospel, right after Adam and Eve. You know, the people today, oh, Adam and Eve didn't exist, they're not real. No, no, they're very real. Very real. Jesus believed in Adam and Eve. He believed in a literal Adam, a literal Eve, a literal garden. And you know, Jesus would know because he was creator. He would know. He was God. But the philosophies of this day that purport to give light actually just give darkness. You go, well, Ed, what's the big deal? I'll tell you one of the big deals, and that's this. If there is no literal first Adam... If there is no such thing as the first Adam, then there therefore can be no such thing as the second Adam. You go ahead, what do we mean? In the book of Romans, we learn that through the first Adam, literal Adam, sin entered the world and touched everyone. He's the source. He's the one, sin came through the devil, tempting Adam and Eve, and as Adam sinned, he becomes the federal head of all humanity. And so that when Adam and Eve had kids, they can only have sinful kids, and their kids had sinful kids. So finally, we have sinful kids. Sin is passed down through Adam. He's the first Adam. But the Bible says that there's a second Adam. And the second Adam, Jesus Christ, provides forgiveness to everyone that believes. So it makes sense that a very popular philosophy of the day that tends to say we have all the answers to every issue in life, we can shed light on every question as it speaks to humanity and anthropology and sociology and all of that, except that you can't believe in the Bible or Adam and Eve. Well, without the first Adam, there's no second Adam. Do you know that sacrifice and grace is in the Garden of Eden? Because remember what sin did to Adam and Eve, it caused them to run away and hide, at least attempt to, because you can't hide from God. But that's how they felt. They recognized their own nakedness, which then they said, you know, we can't be naked, so they took things into their own hands. And so I'm sure it's like, well, get the first thing, is next. okay, there's a fig leaf. And they took a fig leaf and tried to cover themselves. Bad idea, because all it was was a poor covering and it caused a lot of pain. You don't believe me? Try it. Email me. Tell me how it goes. We know it wasn't appropriate because God provided a covering for them. It's a picture today of religion covering with fig leaves 
and God's grace providing. You know, he provided a covering of animal skins. How? By sacrificing those animals for the sake of Adam and Eve's protection. You see, God didn't have to do that. He could have let them run. He didn't have to pursue them. Do you know the same is true for you today, but in a much greater way? When you choose to run away from God, it could be God's choice to let you go. But he's already set the standard. He pursues you. Why? Because he loves you. Maybe you've never experienced love on this level in the human realm. But God's love is so much greater. He pursues you. He offers forgiveness to you. He accepts you, not with your little fig leaf coverings, but with what he's ready to provide for you. If you just stop, if you just stop running, if you just recognize that Jesus is the light of the world, that I don't know what book you read recently, but it doesn't provide the light of the world. I don't know what system you jumped into, but it's not giving you the light. I don't know what smarts and what you've used to cover up the issues in your life, but it's not providing you. Not only is it not providing you the nourishment from the bread of life, but it's also not providing you the light that you need to see the way to the Father. The lampstand provided the light within the area of worship. It wasn't out in the outer court. It was in the inside. It was in the inner court. It provided light in the place of worship and personal devotion. The only place you'll find intimacy is in the light of the gospel abiding in Jesus Christ. It's not your temporary fig tree leaves covering. And some of you are just like, oh, come on, man. That just sounds, I never used a fig leaf. Yeah, but I bet you've gotten drunk, fig leaf. I, I bet you have been overcome with some kind of narcotic or some kind of drug, fig leaf. You may have run from relationship to relationship, fig leaf. We cover life in a lot of different ways today. We're a little more sophisticated, or so we think. But nothing will cover sin to the satisfaction of God except his son, Jesus Christ, the one sacrificed for you and for me to cover all of our sins, to cover our sins past, present, and future, to bring us to a place of surrender, of living life according to his details. It's not too late. It's never too late to turn to God. One more thing. In the first three pieces of furniture, we see more than just pointing to Jesus. I want to throw this out. You can study it on your own. But it's more than just pointing to Jesus. In the first three pieces of furniture of the tabernacle, we also see a picture of the Trinity, of God revealing himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So notice, for the first, on the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, that becomes the place of the presence of God the Father. That's what he said. He'll meet you there and he'll speak to you there, God the Father. With the table of showbread, Jesus being the bread of life, that's where you meet Jesus, the bread of life. And then the menorah. Remember it talked about the bowls at the top? What, what were the bowls filled with? Oil. Because that's how they would keep lit, trimming the wicks and the oil. Oil in the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit. And so right in the get-go of the place of worship, you have God revealing himself by typology Right? Typology is a type that points to spiritual truth, spiritual substance. 
You have the typology even of the Trinity right there in the tabernacle. So you'll see as we go through, we have a few more studies, you'll see how significant this would be to the Jewish hearers that, Hebrew, that Paul wrote to in Hebrews. They would know this inside and out because as they're tempted to go back, it wasn't the tabernacle, the temple was right behind them. They were still doing the worships. They, the temple still existed, which is far different than, it was far more magnificent, far more elaborate than the tabernacle ever was. And that's what they were tempted to go back to. And it's such an amazing study. We'll get to uh, next time. Uh, we'll jump into chapter 26. So Father, thank you for the privilege of looking at this section of the Bible and just being encouraged by all its symbolism and typology. And wow, so much to grow and learn. And just how you have revealed yourself as a gracious, loving God from the very beginning. It, it isn't anything new. It's not just a new covenant standard. It's, a, it's an all covenant standard where you have met man where they are and provided the way out where man was incapable, God, you are capable. Where man has failed, you cover those failures. And even today, you're calling men and women into a relationship with you. Having to come face to face with the realities of religion and how they may be, whether it is in another church or this church, caught up in religious activity and being so religious but not really knowing you personally. And as we're praying, I just want to invite you, if you're here today, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never followed the steps of, of you never completed the steps of following him, that you would deny yourself and take up the cross and follow him, that you would turn from your sins today and receive the forgiveness that can only come through Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to do just that. That here in this holy moment, whether you're here, you're out on the radio, on watching online or downstairs watching on one of the televisions, that God is bringing you to a place of surrender. And it starts with your life following him. Today, if you desire to follow Jesus Christ, would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you. I want to acknowledge that in your life and I want to help you. I want to walk with you and help you with what the Bible says. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I want to invite you to do just that today. So if you're here, right in the room, just stand to your feet. Now we could see you and be excited with you and then acknowledge that before a brand new spiritual family that's before you. You go, man, that's me. I, I need to follow Jesus Christ. That, that is the answer in my life. And what a joy you would give us to be able to, to walk alongside of you. As you live through life, there's so many things that are getting your attention. And so here's the, the moment of truth, right? God has brought you into a church and now on behalf of Jesus Christ, there's an invitation to follow him. Anyone here? This is often a, po a point of, uh, you know, wrestling and embarrassment and all that. You don't need to worry about that. And I, I just, knowing that the message goes out farther than this room, I just want to lead you in a prayer. If that's really the place of your heart right now is to follow Jesus and repent of your sins, you can pray this. You could say, God, I admit to you 
that I have sinned and failed. And I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me, to die for me, and I believe Jesus rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I ask you, God, to forgive me, not because of my good works, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Help me, God, to turn away from my sinful past and to follow you all the days of my life. And Father, we know that as men and women, boys and girls, turn their life towards you, it's a real event. It's, it's super serious. And so I pray for those that would turn to you today, just listening to us, that you would affirm to them that your love, that you would protect them in the spiritual warfare. And I pray specifically, God, for those that are battling right now, they're fighting in their minds. Maybe what was shared today was offensive to them to think that they need to be forgiven, that being a good religious person is not enough. But let the cross be the offense. Let the cross and the finished work of Jesus Christ be the offense because then, the Holy, then you, God, the Holy Spirit, will bring them to a place of conviction. So thank you for the privilege of worshiping you. We pray for our families and friends around the world that are losing loved ones for the gospel. We pray for our friends in Israel to keep them protected. We thank you for our friends up at Buckley and as they do their thing and, and a lot of the, what they do we don't even know, but they do it in order to keep our country safe and protected. So thank you for them. And may you continue to have your way with us as a church that we would find greater inroads with the gospel of ministering your love and your grace and your mercy all throughout this region into the world, God. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.